It's Wednesday, October 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. COVID-19 vaccine trials are currently underway, and we hope to hear news soon about how safe they are. But what is it like participating in one of those trials? Beyond that, what is it like participating with your whole family? Jackie Heidenberg, investigative reporter with Columbia Journalism Investigations, is currently enrolled in the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine trial with both her parents, her sister, teenage brother, and 80-year-old grandma. Jackie joins us to tell us how it's going so far and why she feels that people shouldn't worry about the safety of these trials. Next, one of the biggest storylines of the 2020 election is all of the early voting and mail-in voting. The numbers are changing constantly, but we are already at half the total turnout for 2016. This means that most likely, the majority of ballots will be cast before Election Day for the first time in history, and that there might be some delays in getting results as things are counted. Amy Gardner, national political reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for what to know about the early voting surge. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And then, uh, yeah, then you, you get the injection. And then three weeks after the first one, there's a second injection. Um, and then three weeks after that, or four weeks after that, um, there is a, uh, a blood draw. Joining us now is Jackie Heidenberg, investigative reporter with Columbia Journalism Investigations. Thanks for joining us, Jackie. Thank you for having me. Very excited to talk to you. You ha- are enrolled in a COVID-19 vaccine trial with your f- entire family, basically. So both of your parents, your brother, your sister, your grandmother, who's 80 years old, and yourself, that you guys all signed up for the Pfizer vaccine trial. And, you know, we've been hearing a lot of news about this as it goes along. I think the American public is getting a real education in how this whole process goes along right now, more so than ever before. So I'm very curious to talk to you about this. Jackie, first off, tell me why you got involved with this study. Uh, you know, why would you sub- subject yourself to something like this? Sure. Uh, well, back in March, um, about two days, I think, before uh, first in human trials were in the United States, um, as things were starting to get much worse in New York, where I spend most of my time, um, I was feeling extremely frustrated and stuck. Um, especially since I knew um, my sister was uh, she's pre-med in college. She was doing research on uh, COVID-19 comorbidities. My mother works in clinical trials. My dad works in a hospital. And I was like, I'm a journalist. What can I possibly be contributing to this? If You know, science isn't something I normally cover. And um, since my mom and dad both work in, you know, medicine and science uh, growing up, I always knew about uh, what clinical trials were, how they function, And I figured, you know, if this is something we're going to start to be doing in this country, I would love to participate, partly because um, it might give me a chance to possibly be somewhat protected from uh, the coronavirus and to protect people in my family and around me, Um, but also because they would need participants. So as soon as that opened up this summer, um, I was like, yeah, let's do it. Specifically, your mother is a clinical trial researcher, so I'm sure she had a lot of insight to maybe let you feel more at ease with going into something like this? Yeah, so she's um, more than just a researcher. She's actually a um, a clinical trials liaison, but she's been working in this stuff for, I don't know, decades. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I grew up in a house where we were always talking about, you know, the science of things. And, you know, I was always hearing about, um, you know, IRBs, internal review boards, and, you know, um, things like uh, ethical considerations and, 
You know, these were just things that I that I heard all the time growing up. Um, and whenever I have questions about how these things work, it's very easy for me, obviously, to ask my mom, like, how how does this work? We'll get into some of those safety layers in a moment because I think it's very important and very interesting as well. But uh, let's get to the actual, you know, trial, getting the shot, getting there. How did all of that happen? Uh, my understanding is that the Pfizer trial is a two-shot protocol. So how, how did all that go? Yeah, so um, so the, the trial began, or we enrolled uh, in it this summer uh, when, uh, so my grandmother doesn't normally live with us, but she was spending a few months at a time living with us, um, and I was home for a bit, and my sister was home. Uh, so what would happen is we would go, uh, we would drive to the uh, the clinic in downtown Orlando. Uh, you'd be waiting in the waiting room for a bit. They obviously, you know, will take your temperature. Um, and then uh, there's basically a lot of waiting around, especially uh, for the first injection. Um, for people who can get pregnant, they will do a pregnancy test um, before the injection. Um, you have to sign a consent form. Um, and there's a lot of like waiting in between. Um, they'll ask you questions about your health. And then, uh, yeah, then you, you get the injection. And then three weeks after the first one, there's a second injection. Um, and then three weeks after that, or four weeks after that, um, there is a, uh, a blood draw. Did you get any symptoms from either of the shots? So after the second injection, um, I did have a very low-grade fever. Um, but when I brought that up uh, to the uh, researchers, they were like, oh, well, that's technically... The temperature that I had was like 99.8 at the highest, and they said that was actually lower than the threshold for what they considered a lower. So actually, they couldn't even record that. Interesting. Um, <laughs> so it was very mild. I, I mean, I felt I felt gross, like I, you know, flu-like symptoms, I guess. But for one day, exactly. By the next morning, I was completely fine. And that's um, a, that's so. important to note because these studies are done with placebo. So going into it, you don't know what you get. I'm sure a reaction like that probably lends you to believe you got the actual vaccine. How about other members of your family? Did they get any symptoms, anything like that? Well, my grandmother is convinced that she got the placebo because she said she felt absolutely nothing whatsoever. Um, I think my brother had reported a headache, but our family also gets headaches. So also that's the other thing is like, even if you may have had symptoms, we can't really attribute it to receiving the uh, trial drug uh, because we don't, there could have been something else going on. You know, maybe we were had a cold that day or something. Um, so, I mean, obviously we don't know, right? It's a double-blind uh, placebo-controlled study. So I, I don't really know if I got the vaccine or not. All I know is that the day after the second injection, I had a, I, I felt sick. Um, but it doesn't mean that I got the, the vaccine. I could have, but... Right. It doesn't mean that. What do they tell you after you get these shots? Do they uh, say go out and live your life like normal? Do they say continue wearing your mask and social distancing? What's the kind of guidance that they give you? Because obviously, you know, there's a few things going on in why these trials are happening. They want to make sure that it's safe and effective. That's why you go back and get the blood draws to see if you have antibodies. But you could also contract the virus as well. What do they what kind of guidance do they give you as you leave? Sure. Um, I don't think that there was a particular recommendation as we leave, but they definitely did not say, you know, take off your mask and have a big party. Um, so um, and I think that would also probably mess with some of the controls of the of the trial um, to tell people to change their behavior. Um, so, no, I mean, I'm still, you know, wearing a mask when I'm in, when I whenever I'm with anybody, pretty much because I, I live alone. But whenever I leave the apartment, um, I Obviously, we'll, you know, wear a mask and stay six feet away even from my close friends. So, um, no, very much 
uh, back to life as normal during COVID. Uh, there's been a lot made, obviously, about the politicization of vaccines. You know, the president was saying we're going to get one by Election Day. Really, that's not going to really happen. Um, but it, really, on all sides, there's also a lot of skepticism around vaccines in general from a lot of other things that happened before COVID-19. Uh, but as you went through this process, you, you're looking at how there is a ton of safety measures that that uh, these companies go through. Uh, and uh, as you mentioned, review boards, all this stuff. Tell us a little bit about that and, and, and kind of your enlightened understanding after going through this trial now. Sure. Um, so with this vaccine particularly, I know for a fact it's, it's in the consent forms, but I also knew that going in, uh, that there is no live virus in the vaccine Um so you're basically going to either be injected with the uh, mRNA of the uh, spike protein of the virus, which will it shouldn't make you sick because it's not the active part of the virus, or you'll be injected with saline. So there's really no you're, you're not going to develop COVID from enrolling in at least in this uh, vaccine trial, um, at least not directly related to the injections. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there about this. Um, the fact is, though, that there are so many regulations in place. It's not, and it's really not up to, you know, the president to, uh, to say when we're going to have a vaccine or that we're going to have it by a specific date. Um, the CEO of Pfizer said, um, I think two weeks ago that they were hoping to have the, um, the efficacy data by the third week of November. And then, uh, I think Dr. Fauci said that they might have, uh, the safety data, um, I think in a few weeks after that. So, I mean, it is the, the timeline is obviously speeding up and we might be able to get emergency use authorization for this vaccine by the end of the year. Uh, but it's not really up to, you know, politicians to decide when that happens. It's up to the scientists and the people that are in charge of the protocols for the trials. Well, I mean, it's great to know that you are healthy throughout this. Your family also continues to be healthy throughout this. Uh, when are you done? Is this kind of just open ended? You just kind of keep reporting back or is there an end date for you? So there is a weekly, um, there's an app that we had to download uh, where we basically input whether or not we've had uh, any reported uh, instances of COVID-19-like symptoms. Um, the consent form says that we may be in the study up to 26 months from the beginning. Uh, it, I think they're not expecting it to last that long. Um, and then they are expecting that we'll be back in the clinic uh, a total of seven times. So I've been there three times now, so I still have four more to go for um, other periodic blood draws. So there is that. Um, I don't know when it's going to end. Um, it could be up to a little bit more than two years. Wow, that's a long time, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. it's, it's great to to see that you're kind of going through this. So thank you for doing that. There's about 30,000 participants in this trial. And obviously, there's other trials go ongoing as well uh, through all this. But like I said, thank you for doing this for the benefit of all the rest of us. And, and thank you for being on the air with us right now. Jackie Heidenberg, investigative reporter with Columbia Journalism Investigations. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. You remember that beautiful night in November four years ago, right? Well, I don't think this one will be as close. Joining us now is Amy Gardner, national political reporter at The Washington Post, covering voting issues. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm glad to have you on for this. this is, I think this is one of the top storylines of the 2020 election is early voting, mail-in voting, 
all of this, uh, and we're seeing huge, huge numbers uh, right now. Uh, about oh, uh, I think the number is over 68 million have voted so far. That number is constantly changing. As we're seeing huge lines in a, a number of states, people waiting to vote early, and obviously sending in their ballots by mail. Um, as I mentioned, we're just seeing huge turnouts. I think one of the uh, stats we're seeing that the numbers right now are close to half of the total turnout in 2016. That's amazing. So, Amy, tell us what we're seeing in all this early voting right now. Yeah, sure. Happy to. Well, so actually, I think we just literally while we're recording this crossed the threshold of half Wow. Of the 26 turnout, which was about 138 million. Um, it, it's uh, it's 69 million so far. And funnily enough, that doesn't even include New York State because they don't report out their numbers yet. And uh, so it's actually much higher because, of course, that's a huge state. That's amazing. Uh, but basically from the um, from the from the moment voting began, whether it was people receiving their mail ballots in the mail after having requested them or early in-person voting beginning, starting, I think, in Virginia and then moving on to Georgia and North Carolina and Texas and on and on. The, the lines, as you noted, have just been astonishing. Uh, people have wanted to vote. This year is really becoming the year of the vote in an amazing way because we thought that the pandemic would make it more difficult. We thought that President Trump's uh, attacks on mail balloting and claims that there's fraud in mail balloting without any evidence that that's the case would, you know, discourage voting. Uh, we did not know that the, you know, George Floyd uh, death and the ensuing uh, social unrest would translate into voting. That was entirely uncertain. That just doesn't always happen with civil unrest. And yet all of these things appear to have actually increased people's drive to, to vote. Basically, yeah, uh, voters really are more engaged than ever before. Um, they're thinking we could see records, obviously, uh, in in the vote total when it's all said and done. But let's talk about what we know, what we're seeing from these early votes. Obviously, we we don't know what those votes are individually, but a lot of times this stuff uh, skews towards Democrats. Although Republicans have started uh, ramping up their mail-in voting and voting in you know these early voting in person voting, um, so what are we seeing there? And and any states in particular that have some surprising data? Yeah, so uh, there are um, by my count there are 19 states where you can actually know the party affiliation of the voter who's cast their ballots, and in those 19 states only three show an advantage in the early vote for Republicans. All the others, including red states like Oklahoma and Kentucky, show an advantage in the early vote for voters who are registered Democrats. As you know, it's very important to remember we don't know how people are voting, but we do know that there are a lot of folks who consider themselves traditional Republicans who are voting for Biden. And I don't know if there is a reverse trend of Democrats who are voting for Trump. So, uh, you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that Trump discouraged mail balloting, accused election officials trying to promote mail balloting and making it easier of uh, trying to encourage fraud uh, without any evidence that that's the case. But what happened was that had a really discouraging effect on Republicans voting by mail, which was kind of ironic because 
the Republican Party actually revolutionized mail balloting in Florida 20 years ago and made it a really sophisticated early voting operation. But that kind of went to pieces this year when President Trump started attacking mail balloting. So one of the reasons you see this advantage is simply the rhetoric and the fact that Democrats are more trusting of it than Republicans. But uh, that that advantage is starting to narrow in some key states uh, as more and more Republicans are actually going to vote early in person. That's true in North Carolina. We think it's true in Georgia. And we know it's true in Florida. And obviously, those are all very important battlegrounds. So figuring out whether there will be enough Republicans left out there to close the gap that exists in some of these states is the million-dollar question of the election cycle. And what are the profiles of these voters? Who is voting early? We're seeing huge turnouts in uh, black communities. We're also seeing new voters and unaffiliated voters. I mean, it's not just this uh, uh, Republican and Democrat thing. You know, everybody is turning out, which is such a great thing, really. It's true. I mean, the unaffiliated voter is is not to be disregarded. I mean, in um, in Florida, for instance, where something like six million people have voted, one point two, one point three million of those voters are uh, NPAs or no party affiliation. And how the no party affiliation voters fall is probably the roadmap to knowing who wins Florida and who wins a lot of other states where the unaffiliated decide the outcome. Uh, Folks on both sides of the aisle in North Carolina, for instance, think that the unaffiliated voters are going to decide the outcome of the election there. So uh, it's very interesting that so many unaffiliated voters are turning out as well. And you're absolutely right that you're seeing a lot of enthusiasm enthusiasm among black voters. Uh, We have uh, interviewed dozens of black voters standing in line on the very first day of in-person voting in their states, talking about why they're out there about how they're willing to stand in line for 11 hours, for five hours, whatever it took, because they were so angry about the politics of this year. They don't like President Trump. They don't like the ways in which they believe he's tried to make it harder for them to vote. And it's almost as if he awakened a sleeping giant and prompted people to be more insistent upon exercising their right to vote. It is important to point out that is not only Uh, you know, people of color who tend to vote Democratic or other Democratic groups that are turning out. Texas has the absolute highest turnout rate of anywhere in the country. It's well over 80 percent of 2016 levels already before we even get to Election Day. But it's really interesting because the, the, the highest turnout is in a very, uh, you know, populous, growing suburb of Austin that's turning blue right now, but it's also in a county outside of Dallas-Fort Worth that's very conservative. It's in a tiny rural community of 9,000 people in the center of the state. It's everywhere. And so I think it's really important for, for you know, the listeners and the voters to remember that the enthusiasm is on both sides right now. The people who want Trump to, Trump to win a second term are extremely enthusiastic about voting for him. And so, again, it, this is a this is a real uh, down to the wire uh, calculation of, of who's going to win, because it just all depends on who turns out on Election Day. Amy Gardner, national political reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Take it easy. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.